This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm very excited to have John Tucker with us today. John is an ADHD coach in private practice in Canada. He helps clients appreciate their strengths and pay less attention to their perceived weaknesses. He often coaches those in early adulthood who are having difficulty with schooling, transitions, addictions, and relationships, and sometimes all of those things. With 25 years as a teacher and a school principal and a PhD in education where he studied and wrote about students in transition, John is uniquely qualified to coach those having difficulty with education. He specializes in coaching students who are having difficulty with those transitions from high school to college. Welcome to the podcast, John. It's so nice to have you here. I'm very happy to be here, Penny. Thank you. I have um, seen some of John's advice on the ADD Connect Attitude Magazine forum for a few years now. He's very thoughtful in how he approaches kids with ADHD and their families. So I'm really excited to have him sharing that perspective with all of you. I know, let's talk a little bit about ADHD coaching. I think there are a lot of families who don't really understand what that is, um, what they would get from coaching, how it would work. If you want to give us a brief overview. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Sometimes people think coaches and therapists are the same thing, and they're a little different. There's some overlap, I guess, in their work. But uh, coaches don't diagnose. Uh, They accept where the client is and help them move to their goals. Um, They don't judge and they don't try to make behaviors normative. So a person can have a lifestyle that's unusual or different. Uh, A coach doesn't conclude anything about that. They simply help them. Um, Coaches will work with therapists, uh, but our main work is in developing strategies to get through something. It could be getting through a divorce, getting through a marriage, getting through school. Um, getting through relationship challenges of all kinds. Um, So we talk about, and I am talking with several people about, we're divorcing now and what do we do for the kids? So I'm saying, okay, if you're really focused on the kids, then paying back your ex is not part of that deal. You sort of line up the strategies that get toward where you want to go without doing the damage. So that's one sort of situation. Another right. one would be a kid is in grade 10 and uh, he hates school. He can't stand reading. He doesn't like uh, going to school. He wants to do something else. So I would then coach the parents in how they can negotiate a, a, a separate piece for their kids. Or I might coach the kids. Sometimes I'll coach mom and dad and one or two of the kids. Uh, but in any case, a coach works to help strategies with life where you are now. And the key is around getting organized because that's, of course, one of the things that's difficult for any neurobiological challenges amongst them, which is ADHD. Sure. 
Yeah. And so ADHD coaches have a good understanding about ADHD, the ADHD brain and um, what those specific challenges are and how to address them, cope with them, build strategies, right? distinct from life coaching as such. Um, In coaching organizations that are general, you will find people who coach executives or coach people around finance or coach people around uh, a whole range of things. There's probably 30 or 40 specialties. If a person needs an ADHD mm-hmm. coach for ADHD, then they really should get someone who knows that. Because otherwise, the coach might talk to them about things without understanding how impulse is so powerful with ADHD. So, uh, clients will come to me and say, Oh, I really, really tried hard to get up and get my exercise. And I say, Stop. Don't try hard. Try easy. Because when you try hard, you build up a wall of resistance. Try easy. Don't try hard because people come to me and they're always saying, you know, I have no willpower. I said, of course you don't. It's not about will. It's, a, it's about your brain wanting to run away and do something different. So that, that kind of thing coaches understand. Right. The power of impulsivity, the power of uh, disorganization, the power of that unique brain wiring. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's important to get someone who's trained in that. I agree. Yeah, I think it's um, a very different set of skills and strengths and weaknesses. And if you're working with a coach who doesn't understand that, they are not going to probably give you strategies that really are going to work for that unique brain wiring. So if a family were, because we talk here mostly about children with ADHD, if a family was feeling like they needed some extra help, they've done therapy, they're doing medication, but um, their teen, say, is really struggling, um, maybe with school, maybe in other areas, you know, keeping organized, that sort of thing, that they would be a great candidate for coaching. And in many cases, young men, and this is important, Young men don't want to be helped anymore. They're embarrassed by it. It's not macho. They feel bad. So they're Mm -hmm. not going to go to any more helpers. They feel weakened by the offer of assistance. In that case, I coach mom or dad, as the case may be, to help them. And in a sense, I end up coaching vicariously because the object of my coaching attention is still the young man or the young lady. but I help the parent negotiate how we can get stuff done. Uh, so I often, quite often we'll get a call from mom, you know, my son is 23, he failed out of university, he failed out of college, I can't get him to any, he's home doing nothing. Will you coach him? I'll say, sure, but does he want to be coach? Uh, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, I, can't co- I can't coach anybody right. who, yeah. who doesn't willingly eagerly uh, feel motivated to be coached. So they, they, need, to, they need to come um, with some investment of attention uh, to that. So I'll coach mom or dad, as I say. Right, absolutely. That's one of the things I think I learned from you and some posts that you made on the forum was that if people don't want to change and aren't willing to do the work to change, um, you know, you're not really going to be able to force them to do it and, and have it yeah. be effective. I think that's a really important point to make. Um, but at sometimes I also think that it's really the parents that need 
the training and the understanding of their child and why they do what they do in order to really um, positively affect that situation that they're struggling with. Sometimes it's not really about um, the child's behavior as much as it is how the parents react to it or approach it. Uh, In fact, we often see the comorbidities that go with ADHD. It's an interesting progression. And I've watched in several cases where a person starts out with ADHD, and that's all they really have as a label. But the parent says, oh, you must do as I tell you. No. Yes, you must. Oh, he's got oppositional defiant disorder now because he's defying his parents. Mm -hmm. And he get a label, another label. If it keeps up and the child is 16, 17, and mom and dad are constantly fighting with the child, and it's traumatic, oh, we'll get PTSD coming out of this, his post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, you can get PTSD without being in a war zone. If you're in a conflict, it's a conflict. Mm -hmm. So you can have a whole trail of comorbidities that are resulting from the rotten way the world has received you rather than the wiring that your brain has. I had had a client actually start a few months ago who um, worked in Italy. And uh, he said it was never a problem because everybody in Italy is kind of exaggerated in their activity. So I disappeared. And then I, I came back to this country and all of a sudden I had a problem. So it's it's the situation. Um, very, it's very important that the situation work, and therefore, it's also very important that students head toward things they want to do that hold their attention. If your son wants to be a violinist and you force him to be a lawyer, it's not going to work. Right, because the ADHD brain is motivated by interest and urgency, not exactly. by importance, and that's a really yeah. key factor that a lot of parents and and adults with ADHD themselves don't really understand they think that it's some sort of personality flaw or you know something like that and really it's just about the way their brain works and harnessing and using that to their advantage instead of continuing to see it as a weakness i think oh sorry i wanted to oh as a parent you need to scrub your brain of the prejudice about which jobs are better than other jobs for instance you have a physician, have a surgeon, you have a cashier, you have a hairdresser, you have all these jobs are the same. Because if your child wants to be uh, something or other, it doesn't matter what the status of the other job is, it isn't going to work. So because a certain kind of work generates a huge income and a lot of uh, respect, uh, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. I have mm-hmm. several lawyer clients who the, the, the career didn't work for them. They're brilliant, they can do it, but it didn't work. Their brain wasn't interested. Sure, and I think that is a really important point, and that's um, something that I see a lot of talk about uh, for folks with ADHD to be successful (laughs) in adult life, to have a job or a career. They really have to one, find something they're interested interested in, but also they really need to um, think about their strengths and weaknesses and and how much they match or clash with um, the type of job that they're considering it it can certainly you know kind of make mm-hmm. or break you in a, in a certain industry or yeah, career sure. 
I did want to backtrack just a second and talk, you were talking about comorbidities and how sometimes those come out of the situations that we're in or the way people treat us or the way we perceive Mm -hmm. that they treat us. And um, I know in my research for the Insider's Guide to ADHD, I found a lot of studies that supported that um, having shame or fear as a parenting tactic will likely later cause some of those comorbid conditions for kids later in life, like depression and anxiety. So I think it's a really important point to say that not only might that parenting approach not be effective, but it also might do some damage later. You know, the less you understand your child and their condition and what that means for them, the more damage you can actually do in the long run. Absolutely. And actually, I do have clients who are pensioners who are still suffering mightily from things they learned when they were little children. And uh, and we're still trying to unravel some mm-hmm. of this stuff. The therapist and me and, and, and their... You know, the damage is kind of uh, really solid and permanent when blame or shame are are used. Absolutely. uh, Best not to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. And our school system here in the U.S. for sure still has uh, very much a fear tactic for getting kids to conform. And um, it's unfortunate I think I think it causes a lot of problems for a lot of kids who no matter how hard they try they can't conform to a certain expectation because they have ADHD or something else and their brain is different and it just doesn't work that way Um, you know I see some damage for kids who really struggle in school from that as well they're quite um, I remember calling a teacher and saying I was going to call the principal if they didn't let this young lady sit at the front of the room uh, she asked could she sit at the front of the room because she was easily distracted by the intervening crowd but the teacher took the position look you're a clever kid you're smart you don't need to be in the front where I need the bad people so you got to sit at the back so she couldn't do her work <laughs> so <laughs> it, 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 simple things like the seating plan Simple things like Junior is restless, he's primarily hyperactive, so he needs to go to the bathroom more often than other people. He needs to walk around. So he sits in a place where that can work. Um, Also, Mm -hmm. when I taught for a long time, I discovered by accident now, looking back, that I taught as though everyone had ADHD because what I tried to do was hit upon all the learning styles and preferences and prejudices that everybody had. Some seat work, some dark, some light, some loud, some... You know, I would move around trying to make school interesting because I felt Mm -hmm. teachers were the people who should make school interesting. Now, a lot of my colleagues in those days said, what do you mean? It's our job to tell them what to do and it's up to them to get motivated and be interested. Well, you're 12 years old. You're more interested in other things than Romeo and Juliet or whatever. So I thought that I would bounce around, I would bring color, I would bring various modes, and it sort of worked, especially for people with ADHD. And it didn't hurt the people who didn't have ADHD. Exactly. typically do that. Yeah, I mean, my son has been most successful at school when he has had a teacher who is really keen on 
differentiated uh, instruction and really trying to, you know, reach all different kinds of learners with every lesson. Um, and I think that kind of falls into the same um, emphasis that you're talking uh, about as well. Yep. So why don't we talk a little bit about some common complaints from parents and families um, when they come to you looking for an ADHD coach, some common complaints that might be valid, some that maybe they really have the wrong perspective on and coaching helps to change that perspective. Okay. Well, uh, one typical problem, especially for folks in their teens, is uh, um, video gaming. Uh, I'm seeing an awful lot mm -hmm. of folks who um, complain about their young person who's locked into video gaming. And in many cases, the only safe oasis for this young man, often it's a young man, um, is the video game. He feels powerful. He feels he can do things. He gets rewarded on the machine because operant conditioning is in place. Mm -hmm. The games are designed to make you successful and challenged and keep your attention. So it's perfectly complementary for ADHD. So I, often parents will come to me and say, no matter how hard I hit him or what I convince him to do or how many times he agrees, he keeps going back to the games. It makes me crazy. we got to make him stop. And I say... You can't make him stop. You're going to have to negotiate stuff. You're going to have to find out what he's interested in more. Right. You're going to have to take your time. You cannot order him out of the basement away from the machines. And I have cases where parents have done that, and the kids destroyed two laptops, um, desktop computers, 48-inch LCD screens. Because if you go and you take someone who's totally hyper-focused on a game and you unplug something, you're just creating a volcano of emotion. And, of course, it's incredibly disrespectful sure. to take uh, take over somebody's space and try to rule it in that way. So um, the, the concept, I think, is not really how much you love your kid, but how much do you respect them as a person? And can you behave in such a way uh, that you'd like to be treated that way, that they will learn habits and attitudes that make them good team players, that make them competent and patient persons, patient with diversity, patient with difference, um, so that is the that video game is a sort of the tip of the iceberg of the kind of thing that parents complain about. In other words, generally, a generic way of saying it is, I cannot make my child do. Right away, without naming right. the do, we've got a problem. So I try to get parents to step back and say, pretend your child is now 37. And how would you treat them regarding this issue of coming to the table on time or helping with the dishes or shoveling snow or something or something? So if you, for instance, say, well, it's snowing. He should shovel the snow at this time. Regardless, I don't care if he has homework. No, you've got a problem there with that mindset to begin with. So I think in a family, you have to treat one another with respect. And I don't mean you have to call your baby sir, but you do have to say, they have rights, and you have to respect those rights, and you have to ask them would they like to talk, not tell them they must. So it's a kind of an approach that is the opposite of the spare rod, spoil the child approach. It's more negotiated. So, I mean, Ross Green has done a wonderful job yeah. uh, talking about that in much better way, in much more detailed way, in his explosive child. So, I mean, it's a fabulous book that touches on that same sort of 
negotiate it, teach you how to be a real good person approach. Mm-hmm. And collaboration. Again, Ross Green is definitely one of my um, go-to experts in the field. Um, I think I've mentioned the explosive child or my guest has in every podcast episode so far. So it really is a very dramatic um, approach to change um, what you're struggling with in your family and what your child is struggling with and really understanding and taking that perspective. And I talk a lot about honoring your child's truth and how powerful that is. And I think, you know, we're basically saying the same thing with that in that it's, it shows that you respect them. It shows that you understand them. You know, a lot of kids with ADHD feel very misunderstood. Um, they feel like we're trying to change who they are and trying to change some of their ADHD traits. And it, it's much more powerful to accept who they are and then work on the things um, that need improvement and that can be improved and then work around the things that can't be changed. Um, you know, we're really trying to craft a successful life for our kids based on who they are, based on their ADHD, whatever other comorbid conditions they might have. Um, I think it's it's really, really powerful for parents to look at it from that perspective. And then they're showing their child that respect that they really need um, that helps with the relationship and helps with the behavior in turn. And, yeah, and that respect and that collaborative approach uh, teaches the child the way of living in the world that is uh, most mindful and most harmonious and most productive. Um, If they teach them Mm -hmm. to be afraid, they'll be afraid of bosses and principals and teachers, and they will live a life of fear, shame, and guilt. If they are taught to be confident and decent and um, uh, collaborative, then their lives will be (laughs) much more peaceful, you know. So uh, I I think at every level collaboration and and dignity works. Uh, I suppose there are urgent situations where you have to pull out the authoritative parent card and pull your child back from a speeding bus or something. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the way you behave regarding chronic issues. And you mentioned earlier, in in, uh, just a moment ago, about the ADHD person having the feeling that people are trying to change them and change their traits. That's not a feeling. That's pretty often the case. Uh, You know, yeah. Right. You didn't do your homework. Get your homework done. You forgot this. Remember that. You don't, uh, so you'll get this rule by uh, by order and don't be like that. Don't be. A, the difficulty when you look at your child and think of ADHD is it becomes the main operant thing, the ADHD, and you forget the personhood and you're focusing on this behavior you want to make different. So it's better to focus on the person and not just a set of traits that they may have. That's a really good point. I know when my son was diagnosed for probably two or three years, I was looking for how to fix it because that was my motherly instinct was this thing is bad. This is a struggle. How do I fix it for him? How do I make life easier for him? Um, 
and I just kept spinning my wheels in that place. I never got any traction because there is no fix. And that was the completely wrong approach and perspective to be taking to, you know, affect change and be successful and help him be successful. And um, that's a really, really important point because I think most parents start in that place. That's just kind of the way we're wired to think um, that nurturing aspect and um, it really can be detrimental if you don't figure out that it really is more about the person as you said rather than um, the weaknesses and how they're different from others or different from the quote normal mm. expectations uh, the medical model of fixing ADHD would be fine if ADHD were a disease but it isn't a mm -hmm. disease, and it's not, I don't think, really a disorder. It's more a neurobiological condition. It's the way your brain works. ADHD brains are very often gifted and brilliant, and many of my clients can think vast thoughts, and many of them at the same time. But they're taught that that's a bad thing. So as Ned Halwell writes in the book, um, uh, Delivered from Distraction, a person with ADHD has a Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes. They just don't know how to manage mm -hmm. it. So um, I, I actually don't even think of it as a disorder like Russell Barkley does. I think of it as the way your brain is, and you need to work with that way. You need to use the strengths, minimize the effect of the so-called weaknesses. Mm -hmm. It can be a disability in Absolutely. certain environments that are inflexible and, and not you know, don't have appropriate expectations for that individual, for sure. But it definitely is just a difference in the brain and the way it works. And, and you know, I think we look at it as a disability first a lot of times because um, the environment around us, especially school for our kids, makes it so much more yes. disabling. Yes, if you're in an environment that wants you to conform to something uncomfortable, there will always be this rough edge that you're, that is always hurtful. So I will get 10, 12, 11, 14-year-old kids saying to their mom, I can't go to school. I hate school. Can I leave school? I'll do anything. Take me away. I, I got a couple now mm -hmm. that are really sad about their school condition. Uh, and it, it's not that hard to fix. If, uh, if the learning environment accepts people being different, they say they do, but quite often they don't. They want you to, they want you to be no. different over in your corner quietly, <laughs> not not mm -hmm. asking too many questions or getting up too much or whatever the case might be. Yeah, don't destroy the yeah, status yeah. quo. So this is not good for ADHD. Um, actually, there's a fabulous school that uh, in uh, in Canada here in a place called Grimsby, which is in the around uh, Ni Niagara Falls, where it's a um, a military prep school, so you'd think it'd be very conformist, but it isn't quite. They set up the facility so that people can um, uh, become whatever they need to become, whatever they want to become. And it primarily speaks to folks with ADHD, some autism people there as well. But they'll have this military-like environment, but they got study hall. They've got decent food. Like they have, they don't allow Coca-Cola on the campus. Nobody's allowed to drink or smoke anything. Not the staff, nobody. Everybody has, like, decent food. They have lots of exercise. They have study time and so on. I visited a, a few places um, like that, and this is my favorite. 
of all, and they guarantee every young man that goes to this school will go to a post-secondary school. They guarantee it, and they do. It is incredible. incredible. And these are people who come from all over the world who, you know, were in juvenile detention or in trouble with the law, blah, blah, whatever. But they set up the appropriate environment with uh, kind, firm love, and darn it if it's not the happiest place to go. And, you know, 200 kids with ADHD all happily working away uh, and learning at a good rate and getting lots of exercise, lots of good food. So... Yeah, it sounds like it's tailored for, you know, the healthy lifestyle and the extra help for kids with ADHD. That's really awesome. Um, I did want to mention for our audience that you can certainly work with ADHD coaches um, that are not in your area, not face-to-face in person. Um, As I said, and I think you mentioned as well, you're in Canada, but that really doesn't preclude people in the U.S. or other parts of Canada from working with you. Do you want to explain a little bit about how um, geography shouldn't matter and how it works? Uh, Coaches are typically trained to work through Skype, Google Hangouts, by telephone. Um, It's more efficient, and there are many places in the world where... ADHD is not well understood at all. Um, In some countries, you have great difficulty getting medication, say. Um, So, for instance, if you live in um, uh, Cairo, it's really hard to find a coach or even a medical person who will prescribe methylphenidate or anything. So you need to call in. So what happens Mm -hmm. is people will connect with you by email, say, uh, and, or psychology today therapist or something, and they'll find somebody in um, uh, a different country, a different town, and they will just uh, phone up and chat, video or audio, Skype. Audio usually works a little better than video, but sometimes you need the video piece. I do have clients, you know, in Europe, in Asia, and, uh, you know, several American cities as well as local folk. So what you do is you're focusing your attention on on what the mind is dealing with as opposed to what the face is dealing with when you do audio. Uh, And it's very helpful because you don't have to dress up. You don't have to get in a bus to go downtown or something. Right. It's a little easier to squeeze into your schedule, I think, in that regard, too. And I think, you know, it sounds like it's more important when looking for a coach to think about... um, their principles, um, the way that they work and teach, and how that's a good match for your child or your family, rather than just specifically looking for someone in your area or something like that. You know, it sounds like really the connection and the relationship is what's going to be most important and really push effectiveness yeah. for those yeah, coaching absolutely. sessions. Even um, very qualified coaches. Um, may work for some clients and not at all for others. And who knows what kind of insight a a person brings to the coaching uh, uh, situation, but if if I say something that somebody finds offensive, it's very difficult for us to establish empathy if I've said this thing that just makes them feel bad. So I might might help your sister, but you don't like me, or whatever. So the synergy... The match is absolutely vital. It, all the rest of the stuff is important, but that's the key piece because 
In the coaching environment, you have to establish a safe oasis, you have to establish empathy, and then together you move forward to get a strategy. I don't tell you how to live your life. I don't tell you what your life should be like or what it should become. We take the agenda that you've designed as best you can, and then we work on strategies together. So if we can't work in harmony, then the coach, you've got to get another coach. Right. Yeah, and I think that's even more crucial probably when you're working directly with teens or young adults because, as we talked about earlier, their willingness to participate and do the work is going to come from that relationship. And if it's not a good one or they're not comfortable with it, they're going to be very resistant. And uh, and I have had parents come to me and say, my daughter uh, is not paying attention. She's not doing well. Fix her. And I look at the daughter and I say, do you want to be fixed? No. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. There's just nowhere to get, nowhere to go from exactly. there. So uh, I will maybe try to convince the parents, but in some cases, I just say, "Look, I'm sorry, we can't, I, we, we can't work on this because uh, if she doesn't want to talk to me and she's not interested in going down this road with me, uh, really, you're going to have to try somebody else." Yeah, I think the parent expectations family expectations are really important too because if they have expectations of say a fix or something else that really isn't possible um, they are not going to get results from that coaching relationship in that instance either. I remember one uh, one short-lived coaching session I had with a family mom and dad and junior junior wanted to go into an artistic kind of program and his dad said no that's not going to make any money, so you have to do this or this. Well, I said to Junior, are you interested in doing that? No. And Dad said, well, I don't care. So uh, it, we, our session was really short. <laughs> really short. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, you know, I talk a lot about expectations mm-hmm. for parents and setting appropriate expectations and and how to do that for kids with ADHD because it really is invaluable if you don't have appropriate expectations nothing is ever going to go well yeah. or right you know parents have parents you have a duty get of there. care to help with boundary setting around can i hit people for fun can i interrupt everybody as much as I like. And they do have to kind of encourage behaviors which help a person navigate society. But you can't order it to be so. You can't just... And, and by the way, it's possible to be too permissive. If you're... I actually know a family who mom gets up in the morning and she makes pancakes, waffles, she makes all kinds of smoothies, sausages, ham. The kids get up and they're too bored and they just wander to school. I don't think that kind of permissiveness and you can do what you like is actually a great idea either. I mean, negotiate, yeah, but you have to allow a kid to actually not be successful at something if they've set up the condition to not be successful. So, uh, you know... Uh, beating mm-hmm. Junior up all night because he didn't get his homework done is not going to make him a good person or help him understand the homework. It's just going to make him resent you and defy you and tell you lies. And, and in mm-hmm. fact, it quite often mm-hmm. with my clients in that dynamic of dysfunction, lying becomes the default. I know kids come to my, uh, your older kids come to my practice, they automatically lie as their first response because they're so used to... Mm-hmm. Saying mm-hmm. what it is they think the other 
needs to hear or wants to hear. So, did you do your homework? Yep, all done. How did you do your homework? You just got home. Well, I did it on the bus. You don't take the bus. And it goes on and on and on like this. They will lie automatically, even though the lie is found out within a nanosecond. They just automatically do it because they want to shut down the noise. They want to stop this racket from destroying their harmony. So they'll do anything. Run away. Uh, they'll do a lot of very bad things. But the first one they will often do is lie if, this, if the pressure is kept up. Right. My son has that problem for sure. Yeah. He... Um he'll do exactly what you just described. What do you have for homework? Oh, I already did it. When did you do it? Well, I did it at school in class. Well, why today? Could you have done it in class when most days there's no time to do it in class? That's why it's homework. You know, he tries every which way to avoid that pain of doing homework and avoid the pain of after all day at school, trying to keep it together. He doesn't want to do it anymore when he gets home. He just wants to relax and be at peace. And so, yeah, a lot of parents see lying as a personality flaw or a character flaw, um, some sort of bad ethics or moral compass, but it really isn't. It's just um, a way for them to... That's right. It's just a mechanism of diverting attention away from the the problem Mm -hmm. area. And uh, so I would caution folks when they get caught up in that dynamic to experiment with asking fewer questions, talking less. Um, For instance, if you have a Mm -hmm. choice about it, you can say and get this idea across your child. You know, if you need help with homework when you're ready, I'm going to help you. Let's make sure the conditions are right. But if you keep pressure on, keep pressure on, and you start to see him or her slide out from under and try to get away from you, you know, you're really maybe pushing too hard and you kind of, you need to negotiate more than, you know, boss around, as we've said several different ways. Right. Yeah, give, give choices. choices. You know, do you want to do it right when you get home yeah, and get it out yeah, of the way? Or yeah. do you want to have a break for an hour? Do you need a snack first? Yeah. You know, there's so many ways to work with your yeah. child on that instead of just, again, trying to push them to your idea of what they are supposed yeah, to do Yeah, it's better to lead to by example in that situation. For instance, if dad, you know, opens a can of beer and starts watching TV and screams at Junior, go do your homework, that's not going to really fly well. You almost need to be doing something mm-hmm. that parallels homework. You, you, you know, Junior needs to see you doing the kind of thing you think is the right thing. Now, it might be that it's not homework, but it... You know what I mean? It sort of is appropriate to be doing. Um, sure, you could be yes, making a grocery yes. list or yeah. cooking a meal but, but or if, something. You know, something that's but if you're relaxing and entertaining yourself, taking and, care and of taking responsibilities, break, uh, and then ordering somebody else to get to work. It kind of it, there's a there's a dissonance there that really resonates with ADHD powerfully. Mm-hmm. Yes, they will latch mm-hmm. right onto that mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. So we're about out of time now. I have really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Will you share with our listeners where they can find you, how they can connect with you um, to discuss maybe coaching services or what have you? Uh, My website is uh, johntuckerphd.com and my email is johntuckerphd at gmail.com. They can call me um, at 416 
That's those website and email are certainly easy to remember. And I will, of course, include all of that contact information in the show notes um, with the podcast. So again, I really appreciate having you here. It was very enlightening. I know that our listeners are going to get a lot of great information. I would encourage anyone who is looking for an ADHD coach to um, at least have a conversation with John and talk about that further. I think that he has a really great um, approach to coaching and to ADHD in general. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.